McKinney leaves the start with a mighty push, determined to put two great runs together. Race to win or lose right here on the centennial course at Beaver Creek. The 26-year-old from Olympic Valley, California, the first-run leader. But Rennie Schneider of Switzerland sitting at the bottom with the second run and total combined lead. So Tamara McKinney now must maintain the lead she held over Schneider in the first run, setting herself up for the downhill portion of this women's combined. Tamara not as good a downhiller possibly as Rennie Schneider. So she has got to get as big a lead or keep as big a lead as she possibly can from that first run. Tamara McKinney down near the midpoint of the course. 18 career World Cup wins, but she hasn't won a race since 1987, and she would like to make her mark here. She does not want to settle for the bronze medals in combined. Coming into view, the crowd sends the loudest welcome any United States ski racer has ever received. The huge volume reaches a crescendo as she crosses the finish line. Then suddenly, it turns to a groan as the scoreboard flashes second place for McKinney. 12 one hundredths of a second behind Frenny Schneider. Back up top we go, and this is America's hope, ladies and gentlemen, right here. This is bib number 16, Tamara McKinney, the 26-year-old from Olympic Valley. And we are back and live. I'm Jimmy Krupka, and welcome to Arc City. This podcast is supported by U.S. Ski and Snowboard and officially sponsored by Spider Active Sports, the U.S. Ski Team's apparel supplier for the past 30 years. Learn more at spider.com. And, this is new, this episode is brought to you by GiveGo. Download GiveGo, the app, and get quick, easy, and affordable access to coaching by pros. I'll tell you a bit more about this GiveGo later on. I've got Tamara McKinney visiting Arc City today. If you know who she is, she needs no introduction. If you don't know about her, then I'm very glad you're listening to this episode because she is an all-time figure in American ski racing. She has 18 World Cup wins, four World Championship podiums, and four Globes, one of those for winning an overall title, and she was the first American woman to do so, and the only one other than Lindsey Vaughn and Michaela Schifrin. When I interviewed Tamara a week or so ago, we talked and talked, and I let her just keep going because I was fascinated by what she was saying, and then I realized that we went for an hour and a half. So for your sake, I've decided to condense the conversation just a bit, and at the same time, try out a new format where I kind of interject and summarize a little bit. So hopefully you like it. Let me know what you think. Tamara McKinney, welcome to Arc City. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right, I'm going to pause quickly for a second. Now, that clip you heard in the very beginning is from this great video I found online. Shout out YouTube user Trucky Web Design. I'm going to play the whole thing in a little bit, but first I'll have Tamara give us some background on why her gold medal in the combined of the 1989 World Championships was such a big deal. It's a great story. Now, back to Tamara. What kind of got me out of the mix in, in, in being uh, favored in any combines was that, you know, in the time period previous to 1988, I had done very well podiumed and combined pretty often. Um, but I broke my ankle right around Thanksgiving, November of 87, just leading into the 88 Olympic year. And 
with duct tape, super glue, and a, a, a prosthetic specialist making a, a customized ankle brace that fit inside my boot. I actually competed in the nationals and I had the, you know, the best points in tech for slalom NGS. So by winning the nationals, I made the Olympic team, you know, with like duct tape and band-aids. Um, that year, you know, was a very edited year. Um, you know, on the, the ski racing side of it, you know, I spent the entire year leading up to the nationals, which were like February, just before the Olympics, I was just rehabbing from November to February. Now on the personal side, which at the time I, I, uh, I just couldn't talk about my mom was in the final stages of cancer, but the cool thing about having that being at home during that time period was that I got to be home with my mom, but you know, Tamara's Wi-Fi gets a bit spotty here. She was saying that being home because she was injured was a blessing because it meant spending time with her mom during the last few months of her life and being with her brother, who she rarely saw. And he'd been in a helicopter crash and, and he had to be home. So we were both home with our moms, which with our mom, which was, you know, we hadn't done in a dozen years. So it was that was the blessing of that. So that was the edited ski season for me our mom passed away right after the olympics in march and because of her injury tamara had only raced a few races that season which meant there was like zero expectation because the way america is you know you're only as good as your previous season they're like ah she's washed up and the reason i'm giving you this background is to let you know like how low i had gotten and how cool it was to be able to, to get to Vail. So, you know, just about August, you know, I've been training pretty hard, getting through, you know, realizing that my mom's cancer, you know, she was free and I was just doing better, you know, grasping, losing her. My dad had died a couple of years before, so I was 26. And, uh, you know, pretty young to lose both parents. And, and, August, I'm I'm in South America in Las Lanas training, and um, and my brother McLean, who had kind of struggled, he was phenomenally talented, won the junior national skiing, and uh, phenomenally talented in uh, equestrian, uh, you know, jumpers, and he won the junior nationals when he was 15, and you know he was in the era of the mares, but you know, as many ski racers do athletes do sometimes they don't adjust well post post sports and he struggled you know he was bipolar and drugs and alcohol and he didn't handle our mom our mom's death and our dad's death at all and um and he shot himself in august so that was you know, I'm in Las Lanas and of course, you know, being in a training camp situation, many athletes don't know how to handle like deep emotional stuff. So, you know, I had a couple of very close friends and a couple of coaches who I was able to talk to, but I couldn't get out of that, right? 
we had a chartered flight, so I couldn't get out of there for a week. So I was sort of in this like, you know, swirling kind of grief. And so the best thing I could do was just train hard. And I just trained hard. And, uh, you know, one of my teammates, um, I mean, there were a couple of really great ones. You know, I remember Reggie Christ, you know, it's a great guy. He used to just come and talk to me a little bit. And that was just so huge. And uh, so to come from there, just like, you know, a mentality of, you know, knowing that my mom would have given anything for like another second on the planet. You know, I, I struggled with my brother's decision, you know, for quite some time. And then just the training, like the training and the skiing and there you go, it's coming back. And I think I was so raw that I was able to, tap into a kind of strength I didn't know I had. And so I got the ability to, to channel that, I guess, best way I can put it. And, and like the best thing I can do is just train as hard as I can. It just seemed to me that that was the best thing I could do was the, you know, the training and, and the, I think skiing at its best, you get that kind of spirituality and, and people don't talk about that a lot because, you know, you got to have your guard up and you got to be a ski racer and you got to be, you know, fit into this box. And I think, you know, there are plenty of people who have good technique, but it's that leap of faith, that ability to go beyond that makes a difference. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, that tapping into that power was, you know, um, you know, certainly something I didn't realize I, I had, I mean, I knew I had the level of strength, but, but being able to tap into that. So coming into Vail, you know, coming into those races. Tamara had poured herself into her training, but when it came to downhill, she had only skied a handful of runs that year. However, that also meant there was no media hype and no expectations for the downhill run. I'm in awe of some of the athletes who, who love to be the center of attention and they can pull it off, you know, on the hill. I was, the media chose to sort of count me out. And so I got to just mind my own business. Now, at some point before the race, Tamara watched a film that would prove to be pivotal in her world championships performance. I had seen, have you ever seen the, the story of Jean-Claude Keeley's uh, Olympic downhill win? It was just this cool story about, you know, he and a friend racing together. And as it turned out, you know, Jean-Claude Keeley made the Olympic team, his friend didn't. And so his friend became his um, ski tech, right? Probably at a time when people didn't have ski techs. And so, and the, the friend was very good. I can't remember his name, but he's very good at waxing skis. And the day of the, the race, there was a little fresh snow on the hill and Keeley, you know, jumped out of the start and thought he had missed the wax, that his friend had missed the wax. And he was like, oh my God, you know bad day to miss the wax of Olympic downhill. And he was like, I'm going to win it anyway. And he just skied out of his mind. So I remember thinking, 
you know, just how cool is that? However, Tamara quickly forgot about the film when she inspected the course for the first downhill training run. She and a friend decided that one jump in particular looked really sketchy. Like we wanted to be on the chair riding up so we could see like the first couple racers and and see how they handled that jump. And so so we time it just right. You know, the forerunners are coming down, the forerunners are wrecking and we're like, well, okay, but they're forerunners, you know, maybe they don't know how to do a jump. And so we're, we're, we're on the lift, you know, just getting on the lift. The first couple of racers come down and uh, first Swiss girl comes down over that jump, you know, flies through the air, full uh, starfish and breaks her leg in front of us. And we look at each other first training run and we look at each other and I'm like, what do you think of the downhill? And she's like, I like it. I like all of it except for the jumps. <laughs> I'm like, Oh my God. Like we're going into our first run this way. And like, I have, I had like three runs of downhill, you know, in December leading into this. I'm like, okay, here we go. And um, luckily not lucky for the Swiss girl because her leg was broken they stopped the training run, shaved the bump down, you know, restarted it in a, in a more reasonable shape without a lip on it. And anyway, so that was the lead up. And so the first training run, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to check it out because I got a little freaked out watching the girl break her leg. And, um, you know, I'm going to ski it strong because you have to go, you know, you have to be certain amount of in it so that you're not getting tossed around. But I was like, okay, I'm not going to try for speed, but I'm going to ski solid. And so I don't think I talked, but I just, you know, skied it like in a solid, solid form, but not tucking. And I came down, I was like eighth or fifth or something. Some, some crazy, like in my mind, like that was pretty good. Like I wasn't even, I was just trying to, find my feet. On her second training run, she decided to tuck more and send a little harder. But there were these three turns in a row before the last big drop into the finish. And they called them Huey, Dewey, and Louie. And, uh, you know, so when we'd hear on the radio, okay, you make sure you're doing this or that or whatever for Huey, Dewey, and Louie, because they were, they were sharp, uh, it was sharp terrain and the way the course was set each gate was set right on the point of that that sharp terrain so you couldn't be you know it would launch you if you were on edge on the on the on the point of that and um you know I came in with a lot more speed because I was tucking you know Huey uh oh a little late and I got to Dewey and I was way too late and I was heading for the fence at like 70 plus miles an hour, you know, like right in front of me. So I just, you know, luckily the sides on the, you know, the outside of the downhill, there weren't, there wasn't soft snow or whatever. It was wide enough. And uh, because it's Colorado, of course. And, um, <laughs> and um, I just like threw my skis sideways, you know, stopped just before the net and then I was like you know really really shaken right and I finished the course just to get off the hill 
And even at that, with like slamming on the brakes, completely off course, coming back in, still making all the gates and kind of standing up in this like anxiety attack. I come to the finish and I'm 12. And, and so I get to the start, go back around. I, you know, there were no, no coaches at the finish. I think just a radio and uh, I get back to the start and, you know, the, the start guy, funny guy, Chris Politis, you know, he was the one that would keep us relaxed and tell us jokes. And, and uh, he's like, how's it going? Like fifth and 12th. Good day, Tamara. You know, and I'm like, I'm terrified. Franz Klammer, the legendary downhiller, had once talked to Tamara about fear. And I was like, but you're Franz Klammer. You're, you're fearless. You know, you, you are, look at your downhill run in this most famous downhill run. You're fearless. And he's like, no, you know, every year at the beginning of the year, I, I have to, you know, feel comfortable before I'm ready. And we were in New Zealand riding the lift and he's like, I'm not, I'm not racing in this downhill because I'm not ready yet. And, and I'm not, I'm not going to get in the start if I'm not feeling it. So, so that like, he could have told me like he was so great and he'd never experienced fear and I would have believed him and I would have still thought he was great. But to me, that made him more of a hero because he was like honest with me, right? And so just, just where I was in the whole experience of it, I get back around to the start and, and Chris is talking to me and high-fiving me and trying to joke around. I'm like, I'm terrified. And he was like, no, no, you're Tamara McKinney. And, you know, whenever people talk about me in that sort of whatever that is, that, that pedestal, that pedestal tone of voice, I think, oh, you really don't know me, right? Because I'm like, at my core, I'm an introvert. I'm, I like to learn things, but I, I never had the arrogance, like I had confidence, but I didn't have arrogance. So when he's like, you're Tamara McKinney, I'm like, I'm terrified. I'm absolutely terrified. And then he looked in my eyes and he said, oh my God, you are. And I'm like, yeah, I, I don't think I can do this. And he said, well, why don't you go down and you talk to Connie? And um, I get to Connie and again, let him know, like, I don't, th- I think I'm, I don't think I can do this. And, but not in a, like, I wasn't, I wasn't crying. I was just like, totally honest. Like I've got nothing. And, um, and Connie said, he just, same thing. He looked right at me and he was like, okay, you can make a turn like nobody else. These downhillers, they have to turn there because they slide. You, you can make a turn here. You start your turn here. You start your turn here. And he just talked to me with confidence, like, you know, you are the best at this. This course was made for you and you nail it. And he said, this is what we do. There are two more training runs. Cause I guess we lost a, maybe a day of training. It's supposed to be three days of training. We lost a day of training. So he's like, there are two more training runs tomorrow. You nail it on the first run. Don't take the second run. Okay. Just Put that in your pocket, in your confidence. And, and so sort of with that motivation, like nail it on the first run, that's 
that's what I did. So Tamara didn't take the last training run. You know, the way the chatter goes around the start and the race, people thought that I was being cocky, right? That I, I'm so good. I don't need. <laughs> and really, I was like, I've got this much in my tank. And um, the race day was the next day. And sure enough, as it goes, you know, with no storm predicted overnight, we get fresh snow. Not a lot, but a couple inches. So this threw a wrench in the ski technician's wax plans. My technician had, I think, two testers and they were up at four o'clock in the morning with the snowmobile testing skis, testing skis, testing skis, right? Trying to find the, the fast one because all of a sudden, right, we've been in freezing cold. It was like 20, 30 below for the men's downhill um, a couple days before. And we had cold, 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 really dry, like squeaky styrofoam, like Colorado, you know, ice, but chalky. And then all of a sudden there's this fresh layer, which like, you know, is the nightmare for the technicians. Ultimately, it was time to race. But quickly, I'm going to pause for an ad. And don't you dare skip over this because it's actually useful information. It's simple. GiveGo is the world's easiest and most effective way to connect with and learn from professional athletes. So with over 500 experts in more than 10 different sports like skiing, golf, etc., GiveGo empowers you to receive personalized feedback quickly from athletes and pros you look up to. So I've been an expert on GiveGo since this spring and I love it. It's really easy. You upload a clip. It's probably already on your phone and you tell me what you're working on. I give you personalized feedback. I can draw, play, or pause, and record my perspective all through GiveGo's technology. It's effective, affordable, easy, and fun. Download GiveGo from the App Store, use code ARCCITY, that's A-R-C-C-I-T-Y, you know how to spell it, and start connecting with me or Alice Merriweather, Stephen Nyman, and others. Now, let's get back to it. Time for Tamara to race. You know, I felt good. I felt I felt like I had a plan. and. And um, I was confident in the start. You know, I wasn't freaked out the way I'd been uh, the two days before, but I was confident in the start. And, uh, and I started just behind the first seed. So I think I started 16, something like that. And I power out of the start. I remember having a really good start and I got into my tuck and I had that thought, oh my God, we missed the wax. That thought. That same thought that Jean-Claude Keeley had. Right? And I'm like, oh my God, we've missed the wax. What a day to miss the wax. And then the same thing, I was like, oh hell, you know, I'm, I'm just going to put it down anyway and see where it ends up, you know? Here we go. Bib number 16, Tamara McKinney, the 26-year-old from Olympic Valley, California. Schneider at the bottom with the lead. Teammate Brigitte Ertley in second. And now it is Tamara McKinney's race. Who's a little ragged up on top. She's pulling it back together. But Tamara McKinney skiing very aggressively. Tamara, as is Freddie Schneider, more of a slalom and giant slalom specialist. She does not run downhill on a regular basis. So this is an all-out charge for Tamara McKinney, the 26-year-old from Olympic Valley, California, wearing having a great run, carrying a lot of speed down onto the Swiss face as we near the bottom half of the course. As she clears the lip on Peppy's face and down the front of the shush into the finish area, it is Tamara McKinney coming across the line in a time of 
And so I probably skied way harder than I knew I had in me because I felt like I was compensating for maybe missing the wax. So anyway, so I had this, you know, great run and it all came together and it was like, and you won gold. Yeah. So it was, that was, that was sort of a long winded version of the backstory there. So it was a bigger than just like, Oh yeah. You know, I want to win a gold medal. That gold wasn't just a big deal for Tamra, though. It was a big deal for American ski racing. There had been a gold medal drought at World Championships for American ski racers for years, and this event took place on home soil in front of the home fans. But the craziest thing about Tamra's story is not her winning run that day, but actually the crazy way in which she joined the sport years before, and also how she made the national team at just 14 years old. My mom um, had always aspired to skiing and wanted to be a ski racer, but she was born in Maryland and she learned ski behind horse skijoring. She had a first cousin who was on the French Olympic team. And so that was her favorite cousin. And she'd always get stories of ski racing in Europe. And, and that cousin was in the Olympics for the French team lifetime ago. So my mom had was married with, um, she went to school in New York City. She taught skiing in Stowe. Um, she was married with five children by the time she was 29. It was a bad situation. And, uh, you know, in this day, they have all sorts of, of um, support for women in the situation she was in. But, you know, suffice to say, the first husband was not a nice guy. And he said, you want a divorce, you go to Reno and get one. And so she did. She took a train out. She, you know, the kids, she was on a farm. There were horses. So she came out. She taught skiing at Sky Tavern, which is a little ski area on the Reno side of Mount Rose. We'll talk about that later. And uh, she brought um, English riding to the Reno rodeo and the Reno area. And she was a single mother teaching skiing in the winter and English riding in the summer and living in a divorce ranch. That was a business that popped up. Ladies could come, women could come who wanted divorces and it could be like a quicker divorce, 60 day residency. You could get divorced where in Maryland, it was a two year waiting period. And then maybe if the judge was in the mood to grant a divorce, it could happen. So, that's how Reno came to be. So my mom's horse background, she's a steeplechase jockey. Um, she grew up around horses. Uh, she had met my dad in Maryland. He was a Hall of Fame steeplechase jockey. And she aspired to skiing. He never skied, but they had the horses in common. And um, after she was divorced, you know, they stayed in touch. And he used to come out and see her. They ended up getting married out here in Reno. And, uh, and part of her divorce decree in Maryland was that she could get divorced, but she could not return to the state of Maryland until the youngest child, my brother Steve, who was, you know, two by the time the divorce was completed, um, until she could not reside in the state of Maryland until 
Steve was 16. So she couldn't go back to her home. So ultimately, Tamara's dad, who isn't the mean one, he's Tamara's mom's second husband, gets a place in Kentucky because he's involved in horses. And, um, and that's, that's the year I was born. So my mom and my, all of my older siblings had been skiing and ski racing for six years in Tahoe, you know, uh, Mount Rose. And at this point you have, you have seven older siblings. Yeah. So one had died. So six and, uh, um, yeah, so I was born the first winter in Kentucky and Kentucky was necessary because my dad was a Hall of Fame steeplechase jockey and a horse trainer. And that's how he did his business, buying and selling horses and, you know, uh, training horses. And, um, but because the family, you know, older siblings and my mom loved to ski, they figured out a way to, to go back and forth. So she had a little ranch uh, south of Reno, like 20 acres south of Reno, and we would spend winters out in Tahoe, you know, Mount Rose, and and then Kentucky on the farm in the summer. And then you just you just must have skied a whole bunch every winter so every, and just got better and better? Every winter. So yeah. So So by the time, you know... I think I was three and a half in my first race. So the races in my childhood, um, and I think they were probably like this on the East Coast as well. The races were, um, junior races were all in one place because that, you know, they weren't, there weren't a ton of ski racers. So, um, so it was a way for my, you know, my mom would go be a gatekeeper or help with timing or whatever. And, all the kids would be contained in a ski race, you know, so the younger ones got to run first. And um, so I always got to go at the front and then, you know, then each age group after that to the older ones. And, uh, and so I grew up kind of just keeping up to my older siblings. And, um, and by the time I was eight, my two brothers, one sister and another sister had made like U.S. ski team radar. The one sister, Laura, was supposed to race in a World Cup in Jackson Hole in a downhill. And she broke her leg on the way to the start. And then she decided that wasn't for her. But the other three, uh, Sheila, McLean and Steve, Sheila was 12. McLean was 14 and Steve was 16. They all made the U.S. ski team. So that year we had a coach at Mount Rose named Andro Mulcher. And if you look at your ski history, his nickname was the Blitz from Kitts. So he's a famous Austrian champion. And there was a early pro tour happening in the late 60s, early 70s before Bobby Addy made it really big. And Andre Mulcher wanted to live in Reno. He liked the casinos and, and he would train with us. Like he'd hike up between every run and he'd be at the start faster than we could ride the lift. And then he'd take a run, show us how to do it. I'd like to pause briefly right there just to say that that is really cool. 
And unsurprisingly, it inspired Tamara. That was my first like idea, like I want to be like that. You know, I was like eight. And then the following year, Barbara and Cochran won a gold medal in slalom. And and I was nine. And and that was kind of, you know, the same thing, kind of being a shy child. I um remember watching that and not in an arrogant way, but I was like that, you know, I could like I could feel what she was doing. And I couldn't do it yet, but I was like, like, I know, like, I felt that I could do it. And the sources of inspiration just kept coming. Then kind of the years following that, they had the World Cup finals in Heavenly Valley. And it was right when, you know, Serge Lang had just kind of decided to make a bigger show. He and Bobby Addy got together. And, you know, so Europeans like to come to Nevada and gamble and, so World Cup finals in Heavenly on the Nevada side, you know, it was kind of a show. They would have it on TV. But as a kid, what was really cool is that, you know, we got to go and watch World Cup, the World Cup finals right there, like right there. And same thing, like feel it. Because, you know, when you're at a ski race and you're there, you you feel it in a different way than, you know, seeing it on TV where it, where you're removed. And so that was the first time that I saw the overall world cup and, you know, like holding up these, these champions holding up the crystal globe. And I was just like, you know, in awe, but also like, ding, you know, thinking about like, okay, Having run the World Cup Finals course at eight years old and having siblings on the U.S. team, that crystal globe really didn't feel that distant to the young Tamara McKinney. You know, doing the math. And my sister was racing World Cup races when she was 13. They didn't really enforce these rules of this age. Like there was sort of a loose idea that you had to be 14, but nobody was checking passports or birth certificates. So my sister made the U.S. ski team when she was 12. She raced in that World Cup in Heavenly when she was 13. I got to post run that downhill, that, that slalom. And, uh, and it was ridiculous because, you know, I was eight years old in the ruts, but I was just around it, right? And um, yeah, they, she was, you know, she actually was better a better all-around skier because she was muscled up. I was like 95 pounds when I made the U.S. I made the U.S. ski team when I was 14. And I raced the first World Cup. I was 95 pounds. That 95-pound skier grew up to win the overall title in 1983, not too many years later. Then going into the 1984 Olympics in Sarajevo, Tamara was heavily favored to win a medal in both the slalom and GS. She was all over the mainstream media. In particular, a Time Magazine cover, and a Sports Illustrated cover, both of which she has still framed, and she showed them to me. So you've got the, the Time Magazine cover in 84 that says Olympic Dreams, America's Quest for Gold. And then you've got the Sports Illustrated cover where it says America's Best Bets. And on that one, it's you and f three other people, and on the other one, it's just you and Phil Mayer. And so, so the whole country the whole world goes okay Tamara McKinney 
it's going to win gold. And that's got to be hard. It's it's the same, you know, uh, well, you know, I, I could you talk say, about that a bit? Cause, yeah. Cause it, just to, to spoiler alert to everybody who doesn't know your results, you DNF'd in the slalom and you were fourth in the, in the GS. Right. And so, and when, even when you say that, you say it with like an apology. So what I would say is, you know, we're always our own worst critic. Um, uh, and I'll, yeah, I'll tell you a couple things about that. So post season 1983, you know, my motivation was to train even harder, right? Because I was like, okay, now, you know, you can't rest on your laurels. Like when you first win and you know, you can win, it's sort of like a relief when you do. And then it's sort of an expectation after that. And so the personal expectation versus the the country, the world, I think everyone's eyes were opened a little bit maybe by Simone Biles and, and maybe Michael Phelps this last Olympics. Um, to, to yeah, I was wondering about. what you thought about Simone Biles because she has this the same, a similar thing to you. She had a huge expectations put on her by all the media. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, the, but, but also know that those huge expectations are, are also within, right? Like, I should, I should, right. I, because, you know, that's, that's where I should be. So, um, yeah, coming in, I think, you know, looking back on how that went 84 should have been my, my year to win. Right. And, and the human nature, it doesn't matter how much you win the media, your country, your sport will inevitably focus on the races you didn't win and, and make you uh, focus over and over and over on the race you didn't win. In 1984, 20-year-old Tamara McKinney was trying to navigate this media landscape, trying to please everyone, and she had very little help with it all. There wasn't anyone looking out for our best interests, right? And at the time, as individuals, you know, we had coaches on the Hill, I would say, but as far as media obligations and fundraising and all of that, and we had just newly um, come into this big marketing. It was like the first big like explosion into the marketing world with the USC team. And we had a, uh, a lady named Inez Amy who came from NFL background. And so she's like back to back to back to back to back to back kind of promotional stuff. And since I was the golden girl, you know, I was red eye flights all over the country every time we weren't at a training camp. And I was not allowed to say no. In, in my brain now, I realize I should have, but I, like I was 20 years old and they told me I had to do it. I, you know, it's, it's not like I was a robot. I, I probably, if I had thought about it, could have said I'm tired. And, but it didn't occur to me. I just thought, well, this is part of winning. You know, you just have to do all this extra stuff. So 
you know, by the time uh, my, I think my early season leading up to the Olympics, I don't think I'd won a race yet. I was tired. And, and I had trained so hard because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't resting on my laurels between the, the hard training and then flying all over the country, you know, in every extra moment, I was tired. And I didn't know I was tired. I was just, you know, exhausted. Then came the Olympic GS race. And I came down, I came down the first round and the snow is a little weird in, in the former Yugoslavia, you know, it, um, like the way you have in Colorado where it's chalky in Yugoslavia at the time, they had a lot of coal, um, for heating. And so it made the snow kind of dirty and I don't know. I just, I just. I got to the finish and I was 10th after the first run and I was just like, oh my God, you know, what is that? And, and I just was devastated. And, you know, so in, in going between runs and thinking like, I have been in a have to state of mind, right? Like, I have to do this for them. I have to do that for them. And, you know, I felt an obligation to, to everyone else. And, and in between runs, I thought, I just want to ski for me. And the second run, you know, I, I found something and I won the second run. And I was like, this much from a bronze medal. Like if I had won the bronze medal, we all would have been heroes, right? Because we would have been. Because um, Kristen Cooper won a medal, her, and so did. Uh, so Debbie Armstrong won the gold. Yeah. You know, her best to that point. I don't even know if she'd had a top ten to that point, and um, and so you know, like this far from from the bronze, which would have been like clean sweep, never done before or since. I would have been this, you know, like fantastic. But ever since then, right, the, the, every Olympic comes around and, and that tone of voice, and it's not, any, it's not any slight on you, it's just how human nature is, right? It's like, oh, you failed. And I tried. And I don't, I don't I'm not saying that you, I'm not saying that you meant it that way, but that's, that's the perception being on this end of it. And so, it's, it's interesting to me, like what I learned that day, right? That day was, I have to, I have to protect my snow globe, right? I have to, I have to save enough of me to be me. And uh, yeah. Then came the slalom race. And like too many Olympic slaloms, it was just a little weird. It was, you know, this dry, chalky snow we all trained on. And the night before they came out with the Yugoslavian army and like fire hosed the hell out of it. And so it was like chunky, chunky. You know, they didn't know how to water it. And I hooked a tip and I was like, okay, it's over. You know, as foggy as anything. And Paoletta Magoni one and I don't 
I don't know that she had won before or after, but sometimes that happens. And I, I just remember being like, you know, it was supposed to be me. Suddenly, as quickly as they had begun, her Olympics were over. But there was still time left in the day. What Tamara did with the rest of the day would prove to change the course of slalom skiing history. So, you know, first hook tip, first run, done. So, you know, whatever time it was in the morning, 9.30 in the morning, Chris and I were the only ones in the slalom team that, that Olympics. And we look at each other and we're just like, we're done, right? Done. And, you know, what do you do with all that emotion? I want to go train. And that day, so that was just the transition time with, uh, we'd been having rapid gates for a couple years, but the men were already skiing through the rapid gates. The girls were still going around and I felt it that day. Like I had seen the men doing it, but I hadn't, I hadn't found the line yet. And the, the release in the, in the fall line that is fast. And um, so I hadn't found that skiing through the gate in a, in a way that is accelerating. And I found it that day. And so I won a bunch of the next slaloms that I won the slalom world cup that year. So, okay. I didn't, I didn't get that gold medal, but I got another one and I got the slalom world cup that year. And, and I, I kind of, you know, I was kind of the um, leading the charge for the, the women skiing, skiing through the hinged gates because it hadn't happened before. To bring this story to a close, at the end of that Olympic day, the Olympic gold belonged to Debbie Armstrong, an American underdog, and Tamara made sure she was the first to congratulate Debbie. And honestly, you know, like Debbie Armstrong had the race of her life. And I hugged her and she was lovely and we're still friends. And, you know, we still uh, text and call each other all the time. And I congratulate her, you know, my belief as an athlete is that we are, it takes nothing away from us as athletes to congratulate and honor someone who has the race of their life, right? And to, to admire and respect that, it's reciprocal, you know, when it's your day. And so that, that Olympics, okay, they were supposed to be my Olympics, they weren't. But you know what, Paoletta Magoni is the champion in her town in Italy. Debbie Armstrong, you know, the race of her life. And, and that's how it shakes out. And I wouldn't change anything, you know. Tamara used those Olympic races as lessons. And those lessons proved to be valuable. And, and this is where our podcast begins to come full circle in 1989 at the World Championships. By the time I got to, to Vail, I was able to have that, that boundary. And I had coaches who respected my boundaries with the media, you know, the, the, that early pressure from the NFL kind of person, you know, it was a have to, 
because, you know, US ski team needs to raise a bunch of money. And I, I was the vehicle with which they were going to do it. Um, but the coaching, having the coaching staff that respected that I needed some boundaries so that, you know, I'm not just giving it all away. You know, I learned, I learned from 83, 84 and coming into 89, you know, I was a little more, I was tougher. I'd been through life, I, you know, in life and death, the scale of a U.S. ski team half to became smaller. And I was like, I learned, I learned to say no. Yeah. Well, thank you for that story. And, and I asked about the Olympics cause I'm hoping to get people to understand a bit more, you know, go leading up to these Olympic games, you know, if Michaela doesn't win a medal, that's okay. Like I want them to understand that the intense pressure, the intense media scrutiny and all of the different things you have to navigate, let alone weird snow conditions and, and fire hosing the hill the night before and all of that different stuff is something that, you know, the general public doesn't really understand. They don't really understand that it's not just, oh, you're the best, go out and win, you know. The, the you know, having Simone Biles, the amount of pressure she had, I remember the, the buildup this year and I thought, I, I am in awe of people who can have that amount of media frenzy, darling, all of that dancing with the stars, you know, being on the, on the, on the couch side of the Olympics, watching, uh, watching, you know, things unfold with Simone. I was like, I don't know if it opens, opens the door or opens, opens the, the ability to have the conversation about you know, what is, what does this look like? Is there a way to, to do this, to do this sporting thing better? There has to be a little bit of unconditional, you know, the way you have football fans that love their team, you know, sure they want them to win, but they're still wearing the Jersey when they're not winning. Um, how do we get that in the Olympics? I don't know, but I'm going to send you a video. I don't know if you had a chance to see Amber, did you? She's a comedian. I, it was the first time I'd ever seen her. And it's called Positive Exit Interview. And I'm going to send it to you. And you can find it on YouTube. I think she's a she has her own show now. The interviews that athletes give after they've competed at the Olympics can be really tough. The interviewers ask stressful questions like, do you know that everyone's counting on you? Well, not me. I'm here for one reason and one reason only, and that is to make athletes feel great. This is Feel Good Exit Interview. Question number one. Do you know you did an amazing job? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you did. Do you know that when I watched you compete, my heart swelled with pride for my country? Oh, I didn't know that, but now it makes me. And these girls are looking at each other like they're waiting for the hammer to drop because has anyone ever come out of their sport in any Olympic games or professional sporting event to an interview 
uh, interviewer asking that question. You know, no, yeah. <laughs> it's not going to happen, right? But it was kind of cool. So anyway, it was just it was just kind of a cute, funny thing. And I actually sent it to Debbie Armstrong after I watched. I was like, how about this? <laughs> That's cool. Now we've got uh, about five minutes left. Not much time, but I really want to talk about. So recently there's been a lot of discussion about accessibility in ski racing. And has the sport become too expensive and too inaccessible? And I understand that you're working on some sort of ski area that will be more accessible uh, in Reno. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was the, the, the quick reference to my mom uh, when she was a single mom working at a ski area, uh, teaching skiing in the 1950s and 60s. So the ski area is called Sky Tavern. Um, the quick version, um, and certainly it, it might be worth another podcast if you wanted to delve more into it. But the quick version is um, Sky Tavern is one of the oldest junior ski programs in the Western U.S. Um, it uh, in the 1960s was donated by the family who owned it. Um, it was donated to the city of Reno. So it's basically a city park. Um, so two chairlifts, and there are two uh, new last year magic carpet rides for the, you know, beginners and little kids and, you know, people who want to be on the, the flatter hill. Um, so 143 acres. So it's 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 a lot like some of the East Coast ski areas. It is run by um, a, a nonprofit foundation. I've been a board member for three years. The chairman of the board is Yale Spina, his brother Lane Spina is a two-time uh, Olympic medalist in aerials. Both Yale and Lane, you know, went on to have professional careers in skiing and they learned to ski at Sky Tavern. I was a baby in the lift shack when my mom was teaching, you know, the lift attendant. She'd like, keep an eye on her. And then my siblings would take me for rides on their shoulders or mom would take me in her, you know, in front of her skis. So that's that was my introduction to skiing. Um, Little Sky Tavern. Another step to to bring it, bring the awareness to of Sky Tavern to to more people. You know, more diverse uh, socioeconomic um, people. In you know, right now it's it's the Reno area, but we have kids coming from Elko, and Elko is um, you know four hours east. Uh, some of the miners' kids, especially with COVID, where everyone was stuck inside. Um, some of the people in the mining industry were bringing their kids for the weekend and the parents come up volunteer for the weekend. So anyway, that's, that's sort of the quick version. The last nugget I'll leave you with is that we're very excited um, that the world pro tour have, has given us a letter of intent. We were trying to have a, a pro tour event there last winter, but COVID kind of shut everything down, but we have a letter of intent and they want to, um, be part of our annual ski festival there. Um, and uh, the, the ski festival that we're putting together will have, um, you know, music, we'll, we'll have the pro tour races during the day, but we'll also, because we're close to Reno and close to the casinos, have music and entertainment as part of this festival. So um, all of this is basically raising money for 
the junior ski program in the winter, and then the the year-round sports that uh, we just started up this year with mountain biking, fitness programs, yoga on the mountain, etc. And you know, it's just I think skiing is just as we started, like to to be able to get out and enjoy it. Not everybody's going to be a champion, but you know, if you can get out and get that outdoor mountain lifestyle, it's it's life changing. Yeah. Yeah. And this and this comes for full circle to what you're talking about in the beginning and the way that skiing can be spiritual. No matter what level you're doing it at. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, ski racing can break your heart no matter what level you get to. But what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Tamara McKinney, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, I have a whole bunch of new insights, new stories, and yeah, thank you for your contribution to American Ski Racing. Oh yeah, thank you. Wouldn't change a thing. Well, that just about wraps up our episode for this week. If you made it this far, thank you for listening. I've got just one cool thing to mention before I go. I'm on day 10 of my return to snow program after breaking my leg last winter, and I posted on my Instagram story asking advice about a particular type of shin pad. The number of responses I got was overwhelming. People from all over the world, random people I'd never met, and even fellow competitors all reached out to help. I mean, don't, you know, it, it was like, 25, 30 people. It wasn't like it was thousands of people, but still it was truly a beautiful thing and a testament to what an amazing community the ski racing world is. And I hope you all remember how lucky we are to be in this community. If you want to help this podcast get better, send any questions, suggestions, or constructive feedback to arccityjimmy at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at jimmy underscore who underscore. If you want to help me grow this podcast, Tell your friends about it and give me a good review. If you want to get excited for ski season, just do it because snow has already fallen in several states and the first World Cup is only six weeks away. But I'll be back with another episode before then. Until then, I'm Jimmy Kripka and thank you for visiting Arc City. Oh, and one last thing. I'd like to wish my great uncle Evo a happy birthday. He's been a consistently great fan of the podcast, which means a lot. Happy four days late, 80th birthday, Evo.